the old man carried a heavy weight deep inside. The message was coming, but could it really be time? He was well past 80, but he could remember what it felt like as a small child. When he was up on his dad's shoulders at festivals, the sweet smell of the incense burning, the scrolls of Moses being read aloud from the platform, he could remember. He closed his eyes and he could still hear it when the people had songs in their heads and hope in their hearts. But all that changed. The invading army came quickly like grasshoppers, savage and hungry. As a boy, he hid in the shadows as the Babylonian king mowed down his people. Jerusalem, God's city, leveled. The temple, smoldering. The people led 900 miles eastward to Babylon. 900 miles is a long way for anyone to walk. He had spent a lifetime in that strange kingdom, afraid, away, and immersed. And then, at the snap of a new king's finger, the people were free to return, to go home. But most of them had never called this place home, but it was his home, his and maybe a few others. The younger men had kept their new names, names that he had learned to pronounce but were still strange to his old ears. No matter, he thought, they were home, back where they belonged. The older men had older names, Hebrew names, because they were from here and they could remember. But there weren't many left. His name, Haggai, meant holy day. Fitting, he thought, considering the weight deep inside him. The message was coming. Could it really be time? Yes, it was time. So this morning starts a new four-week sermon series in the book of Haggai. And I know what you're thinking. You're going, Haggai, like, what is that? Is that even in the Bible? Yes, it is. And uh, so there's no shame. You can turn to your table of contents if you don't know where that is. Um, I always feel a little funny when, like, the pastor or the preacher goes, all right, so Zephaniah chapter 2. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So go and look Haggai. You can turn there uh, in your Bible. You can flip there on your phone or you can follow along on the screens in just a little bit. I think the funny thing about Haggai is even though he is so obscure... His message is so relevant for the church in 2019. And as we go, I think you'll understand why. Here's why I love this short, little, two-chapter, like, three-page book. I believe that one of the most untapped potentials in the church today surrounds the idea of priorities. Our priorities. Put another way, we really easily forget what matters most. At least that's true with me. It is so stinking hard to make time for God. Anybody else feel that way? Like, there are weeks that go by, and I'm like, man, I haven't even talked to Mandy this week. Like, what is the matter with me? Like, I look at our kids, and like, they're literally growing up before my eyes, and I'm going, <sighs> and then I have to stop and ask myself, am I prioritizing the right things or the easy things? Am I living out of my calling or am I living out of my convenience? If you've ever felt that way, you are in good company. 
Haggai's little book is broken up into four speeches, and today we're going to take a look at the first one. Um, This first speech really sets the tone for the entire book, and even though it's 2,500 years old, it carries one eternal, timeless truth, and here it is. To keep our priorities right, we need to remember what matters most. To keep our priorities right, we need to remember what matters most. Haggai chapter 1 gives us three ways to remember what really matters. But since this is kind of the first week of this series and Haggai, like we said, is really obscure, I want to back up and set the stage a bit because we're dropping into a really obscure part of history. So almost 70 years before our text this morning in Haggai, 70 years earlier, a king called Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, brought his army and for two years threw everything he had at the city of Jerusalem. In the end, slaughtering King Zedekiah's sons in front of his eyes, and then, in a twist of power, had Zedekiah's eyes gouged out with a knife, led him away in iron shackles, 900 miles to Babylon. The temple, the centerpiece of covenant worship was leveled. The king, now captive to another king. Not a high point for God's people. And then they started walking. The journey eastward to Babylon would have been 900 miles. And just for a sense of perspective, that's roughly from where we are here to Orlando. Would have taken months. And you've got mothers with their babies. You've got fathers with their sons. Many of whom would never see home again. As they walked, it's easy to imagine them sneaking glances behind them over their shoulder to see their holy city, their promised land, smoke and ash. But after Nebuchadnezzar died, a new king came to the throne, a king called Cyrus. Cyrus was a Persian. He's not a Babylonian. And Cyrus believed in this Persian foreign policy that if he let people in his land return to their homeland and worship their gods, that his gods, the Persian gods, would smile on him, which is terrible theology, but it worked. So he sent the Israelite people home. He says, you can go. Go home. And some of them went home. Now, you'd think that'd be incredible news, right? You'd think the people would hear this. Like, finally, after more than a half a century away from our home, we get to go back, back to the land that God promised our great-great-grandfathers. Good news. Well, not quite. It had been 70 years. Most of these people were functional Babylonians. It had been 70 years, their second or third generation exiles. It had been 70 years. They'd never been to Israel before. This is not their homeland. The buildings are in disrepair. The fields are not kept. It had been 70 long years. And that brings us to Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. And the first way we remember what really matters, the question. Take a look in verse 1. The second year of Darius the king... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now this verse introduces Haggai, okay? It just gives kind of the the characters, the tone, the time. For Haggai, he's this primary character on stage throughout his book, but he's a pretty obscure guy. He's only mentioned one other place in the Bible, and even there it's peripherally, so he's really kind of this obscure person. But then there are these other two guys, Zerubbabel. I don't know if you or anybody you know is expecting, uh, but uh, that's a good name. If you want to throw that out there, it's an option. 
I wouldn't. Here's what, here's what you need to know about Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was named governor of Judah, which in this point was kind of like being named mayor of Nome, Alaska. Okay, like this isn't a high honor. It's at the fringe of the Persian Empire. This is not a very important post. And then standing off to Zerubbabel's side is Joshua. Joshua is named as the high priest. I want you guys to think about these two people as two wings on the same bird. Zerubbabel was the guy that covered the civic government of God's people, and Joshua covers the spiritual government of God's people. And then there's this last guy in this text named King Darius. Now, who's he? All right, we had Nebuchadnezzar, and then we had Cyrus, and now Darius. Now, Darius is another Persian king. He was the oldest son of one of Cyrus's nobles. And so when Cyrus died, Darius came to the throne. And Darius did some amazing things that you need to know about because they helped to set up the story really well. He engineered a canal that connected the Red Sea to the Nile River. Huge economic impact. He introduced a universal currency that was recognized as far away as Eastern Europe. He aligned all of his nobles under a very common system of government. And overall, Darius was this very good, benevolent, thoughtful king. It wouldn't be inappropriate to think of him like an ancient Near Eastern version of Kennedy. But the last piece of context that you need to know is that by linking the activities of his book to the kingship of Darius, Haggai is actually setting up some pretty heavy irony. And here it is. Take a look in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say that the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. What's going on here? Here's the problem. The people arrived back in the land after not being there for decades. They get home, they saw plenty of things that needed repair because a few decades of neglect does a lot to a city and fields when no one's looking after them. So after a not so hard look around, the people took a look and said, you know what we need? We need to get on with living. We need to build our, ourselves some really awesome houses. Give me the lawn chair, the game is on. Give me the Pepsi, the remote, and a bag of chips. I'm ready to go. We're finally home. And they spent 19 years like that. Now think about where you were 19 years ago. This would be the fall of 2000. I was just about to start my sophomore year at Moody in Chicago. Mandy and I had just started officially dating. We had our first date at Starbucks on the corner of Chicago and Wells by the L-Tracks, which sounds really shady when I say it like that. It was, it was all good. But this is 19 years ago. Think about where you were. 19 years, there's a lot that can happen in 19 years, can't it? Like, 19 years is plenty of time to get your priorities right. But after 19 years, the people are just kicking back. And they can't figure out why things aren't going well. They can't get anything to grow. The rivers are drying up. They just can't seem to get ahead. And then Haggai shows up with this really nagging question in verse 4. 
Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, that's what we call a rhetorical question. It's the kind of question you're not supposed to answer because you're already supposed to know the answer to it. And it's like, ah, the answer is no in this case. Fascinating insight. Did you see how God describes the people's houses here? He says paneled houses. And what is that? That's not like the four by eight sheeting from Home Depot that you can get that was like really big in the 70s and it's probably in everybody's basement. It's not that kind of paneling. It's a really weird and unique Hebrew word for paneling. It's only used five times in the Old Testament. Four times when it's used, it's used to describe, get this, Solomon's temple. The original temple. Do you get the irony? Here's what God's saying. You know how my house is supposed to look? Yeah, um, your house looks like that. Cool. Yeah, God, um, about the time that was needed to, like, build your house, man, we really haven't had a moment to spare. And, like, about the paneling uh, that's supposed to be kind of in your house, Home Depot ran out of the paneling, the kind of paneling that you see, like, on, on our houses. And God's going, wait, 19 years wasn't long enough, and I saw your house on Love It or List It. Awesome updates. Well done. Um, but you sure this isn't about something else? And then there's verse 5. Here is the atom bomb. <laughs> now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Which is like a more ominous way of saying, hey, took a, take a look around. How's this plan working for you? Not good? How not good? Verse 6. You sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. He who earns wages done so to put him in a bag with holes. I love how Ian Duguid says this in his commentary on Haggai. Here's what he says. They had just enough to eat, but not enough to feast. They had just enough to drink, but not enough for a party. They had just enough to wear, but not enough to keep out of the cold. You ever feel like that? Like a hamster on a wheel? Like you just cannot get ahead? <laughs> it would seem that like God's people 2,500 years ago, that God is asking us a question that we'd rather ignore. It could be that we have a personal priority problem. Here's a summary of the first six verses. When you neglect what God says is important, you can expect to be frustrated. When you neglect what God says is important, you can expect to be frustrated. There are a few words I want to introduce here. Complacency, calling, and contentment. They all start with the letter C. Complacency, calling, and contentment. First one, complacency. This is like the standing still. Okay, This is life on cruise control, just trying to maintain. It's what God's people are doing here. They're not moving forward or backward. They're just like, mm, everything's okay. I think everything's okay. Complacency. Then there's calling. Calling is like a trumpet blast, like waking you up to the reality that God wants to do something through you, but you have this sneaky suspicion that he might need to do something in you before he can do something through you. Do you want to know why many Christians never live out their calling? Because calling costs. Something small in you will die, and something big will take its place, and you don't get to be in control anymore. Complacency, calling, and contentment. 
Contentment, for the follower of God, contentment is the reward that comes when you're living out your calling. It's the result. It isn't a posture that you take when you meditate or a tea that you drink. Like, I really wish it was that easy, but it's not. Contentment is what happens after and as you are living out your calling, going where God's calling you to go, doing what he's calling you to do. It's a result. Complacency, calling, and contentment. Do you see how these three ideas are in play here in this text? For these recently returned exiles with feet propped up, remote in hand, head kicked back, God wants to wake them up to see something that their complacency has blinded them to. And we're often the same way. We are often blinded to what God could do through us because we're just cruising along trying to convince ourselves that everything is okay. But if we're really honest, inside there's like this holy longing for something more that we just can't quite get to. One of the most loving things that God could ever do for you is to rouse you out of your complacency into your calling so that you can enjoy his contentment. And it usually comes with a question. So that's the first place where we see what really matters coming up to the surface is the question. The second way we remember what really matters is to hear God's call. So what's he calling his people to? He's got to get specific, right? Take a look in verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. There it is again. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I might take pleasure in it and that I might be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and on the hills and on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth on man and beast on all of their labors. So God's done with the rhetorical questions right now. He's done just guessing, <laughs> And now he gets specific. He gives his people very clear directives, but he also lets them know the reason behind his frustration. Him. He's the reason behind their frustration. What's his point? God will show you the profound emptiness of the things you love if the things you love choke out your love for him. God will show you the profound emptiness of the things that you love if the things that you love choke out your love for him. Now, there's something we need to name here and get at. We need to talk about what building God's house does not mean. I think this is really important. You'll see why. First thing, building God's house doesn't mean prioritizing God so he'll bless you. Okay? This is like, it's called the prosperity gospel, and here's what it sounds like. It sounds, I'll do this for God, like I will do something so God will give back to me. TV preachers do this stuff all the time, and it drives me crazy. It doesn't work. This is not how God views his people. Here's what bothers me most about the prosperity gospel. Think about how insulting that is to God. To reduce his profound, immeasurable love for you to a transaction. And he goes, no. God's saying, you're going to do something for me? No. <laughs> My love is enough for you. I just want to give it to you. The second thing building God's house is not, it does not mean prioritizing God because he needs it. 
This isn't just writing a check and saying, God, okay, fine, here, deal with it, okay. It isn't that. Keep in mind that the same God who's calling his people to bring back their hunger for his glory is the same God who said in Psalm 50, if I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I own the cattle on a thousand hills, the beasts of the field, everything that flies. It's mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. What's he mean? He means that God will accomplish his purposes with or without me. He doesn't want my money. He wants my heart. Third thing building God's house doesn't mean is it doesn't mean prioritizing God out of shame or guilt. It sounds like this. God, I know, I know. Uh, I know. I should sacrifice more. I should give more. I should serve more. I should do this more. Okay, God, okay, I know, I know, I know, I know. Right? And we're treating God like he's a parent of a teenager. Here's the point. God never motivates you by your shame. He always motivates you by his goodness. You see the difference? One of the highest goals that I have as one of your pastors, and I think I can speak for all of us, is that you genuinely chase Jesus from a heart that craves intimacy with him, from a heart that wants to be led by the spirit of Christ, that can rest in the security that is already yours in Jesus. So here's the biggest problem. The reason that all three of those things don't work and they ultimately fall hopelessly, painfully short is because they start with what I can do for God rather than what God has already done for me. And in short, if you need further evidence as to why Haggai doesn't mean any of those three things, it's because Haggai's audience enjoyed none of it. You'd think that if Haggai's point was to show that if you give to God, he'll make your life awesome, that Haggai would have said something about that. But the text is wonderfully, beautifully, painfully, thankfully short on that. It's silent. Instead, Haggai shows what the people actually get. They didn't get political peace. They didn't get economic prosperity. They didn't get regional influence or restored position. They got God, and God was enough. So if that's what building God's house doesn't mean, what does it mean? I see three things here. Here's what I see. Abandon your excuses. Examine your hearts. Reorder your priorities. Abandon your excuses. Examine your hearts, reorder your priorities. So abandon our excuses. Just to get personal, I give God reasons why I don't follow him all the time. (laughs) And I got tons of excuses, but here's what I notice in my life. My excuses are really just fear masquerading as holy-sounding reasons. They sound like this. God, if I mention your name there, like, I don't know how that's going to go. Or God, like, if I ask that person for forgiveness, like, I'm going to lose, like, clout, and we need that. Or God, like, if I, if I really give this up, how do I know I'm going to be happy? And God's like, abandon your excuses. How are they working for you? Not well? Okay. And then examine our hearts. The hardest part for me to admit, and I think it's probably the same thing with the people here. Here's, here's a, we do what we love. It's painfully indicting. If I say I love Mandy, but I never take her out on a date, do I love her? Mm. I value the word of God. Well, I don't read it. I do, just so you know. I love to pray. Well, how often do I pray? Oh, well, yeah, I can get like two minutes in, you know, sometimes. It's painfully indicting. We do what we love. Examine our hearts. Have the courage to look in here. Abandon your excuses. Examine your hearts. And then reorder your priorities. Godly sorrow over sin and neglect, that's a good thing. But godly sorrow has to lead somewhere. 
If I abandon my excuses, examine my hearts, I've got to take this final step and move something up the priority ladder of my life. I don't think any of you know the story of the Cambridge Seven, but I'll tell you the story super quick. The Cambridge Seven, seven students from Cambridge University who in the 1880s heard God's call on their life. And all seven of these guys were upper class British society, okay? They were lords. They had all their, everything was paid for for them. They didn't have to work a day in their life, right? In the late 1880s, they heard God's call specifically to China. And all seven of them said, what if we gave it all up and followed God to China? What if we abandoned the excuses, examined our hearts, reordered our priorities, and go? So when these seven guys went to China in 1885, there were 163 missionaries in China. When they left 15 years later, that number had ballooned to 800, which constituted one-third of the Protestant missionary force in the world. And every one of these guys spent the rest of their life in gospel movement. They never looked back. C.T. Studd, who is probably the most famous of these seven, later wrote a poem about it, and I love it. Here's what he says. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want, to run, I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You hear Jesus' words in there? Matthew 6, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things are going to be added to you. Don't worry, I'll get you. In my experience, we don't step out into our calling for one of two reasons, and these may be true of you or maybe one more than the other. They're both true in my life at different points. One, I don't step out into my calling maybe because I doubt God's goodness. And it sounds like this, like, God, I believe you're calling me to do something, but if I actually do that, what if you leave me hanging? What if you don't show up? Another reason, though, and this one's, I think, really common, is we don't step out into our calling because we go, God, how do I know it's actually you calling me and it's not just like my voice? <laughs> how do I know it's actually your will for me to do that? So in the first, immobilized by my fear, have you ever noticed how many times in the Bible God calls somebody to something and he doesn't give them the information? All the time. <laughs> Abram, he says, go to a land that I will show you. Esther, if I perish, I perish. Peter, just get out of the stinking boat. <laughs> Paul, God actually makes Paul blind and then says, start walking that way. <laughs> what does that teach us about God? Obedience brings presence. And God's presence is enough. So the real test of obedience for us, for the, just like Haggai's audience, the real test of obedience is how I respond to the question, do I believe that God is actually enough? In the second, immobilized by my doubts, like if this is actually God's voice or not, here's my quick word for you. If you are living in obedience to Jesus already, the will of God for you is likely the next logical step. He's already been working in your life. Give him glory and credit for that. Examine your hearts and work. Do what he's already made clear to you, and he'll keep paving the way. Second way we remember what really matters is to hear God's call, but there's one more. The third way we remember what really matters is when we take a look at the people's response. Because this is really beautiful. The people's response. Take a look in verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, 
with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Now, that last little phrase, that's not just like a little pious, like little tack on the end, like, and the people feared the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? It's beautiful and contrite. It's not that. That's all, that is the turning point of this whole first chapter. Because there's something going on in here. It shows us that what follows next isn't just like this empty mechanical thing. It's actually a change of affection, a, an emotional conviction. Verse 13 Look at what happens next. This is where it gets awesome. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. Think about how that must have sounded. I am with you. That's the missing piece. After 70 years away from their homeland, 70 years surrounded by pagan kings and pagan people, 70 years of disillusionment and detachment, the sea-splitting pillar of fire leading angel army commanding God is with them. But what's most exciting to me about that isn't just that he says it here, but where else God says that? To Isaac, right? Way back a long time ago, to Isaac, when he said he make him a great nation, he said, fear not, I am with you, I will bless you. To Jacob, who's the father of Israel's 12 tribes, he said, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you're going to go. I'm going to bring you back to this land. Interesting, the promise is back there. To Moses, Exodus 33, when the people are about to enter the promised land for the first time, the same land they're returning to here, he says, my presence will go with you. I will be with you. Jeremiah Right? Coming back to these people before they were even taken into exile, here's what he says. Don't fear the king of Babylon, who I know you're afraid of. Don't fear him, says the Lord your God, because I am with you. And then if you really want to blow your theological mind, what are Jesus' last words to his disciples before he leaves? I am with you. You get that? Like a beacon on top of every mountaintop across Israel's history is this overwhelming presence of God, his promise that emboldens their calling and lights the way for a bright future. What should we take from that? God doesn't want to give you provision. He wants to be the provision. God doesn't want to give you answers to your questions. He wants to be the answer to your questions. It's like God turned everything off. Like no food. No drink, not enough to eat, not enough to drink, not enough to wear, not enough security, not enough anything. He, he turns off every faucet, like even the ones that are down to a trickle. And then he goes over here and he goes, let me open up this one. This is like a fire hydrant and it's called me. That's enough. And then verse 14 and 15. The Lord stirred the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, the second year of Darius the king. God gets through. Fascinating little addendum here. Do you notice how God is the one doing the acting in all of these scenes? In the first one, the first six verses, it's God who convicts and questions. The second chunk, this call, it's God who calls and directs. And here it's God who stirs their hearts up for action. What's the point? If Brandon Marshall's life is going to count for anything, it's going to be because God did something with it, not me. 
Now, we got to do one more thing before we close the book on Haggai for this week. We need to drop some New Testament theology over here because unless I missed the memo, God has not directly called anybody in this room to go build a temple. Anybody? Show of hand. No? Okay. If so, talk to me afterward. Meet me at the next steps tables. We'll figure that out. So what do we do with this? Because this is 2,500 years old. Where do we go? Remember how we said that the temple is the visible sign of God's presence with his people. What do we do with that? What does Paul say? He says, you yourselves are the temple of God. What does Peter say? You, as living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. And Jesus, you are like a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. We've got to think theologically about what's happening in this obscure two-chapter book. This is a revolutionary idea. The same spirit of God who dwelt in the temple now lives in the hearts of those who call themselves his people. That means if you're here this morning and you submit your life to the authority of King Jesus, that you're part of this thing. God's presence in the world is not a building. It's in our lives, lives turned inside out and lived for his glory. Well, here's the hard part. We got to leave this here until next week. So I'm going to give you one point of application for today, and here it is. If you buy the idea that we are God's presence in this world, and if you buy the idea that the church is his temple and we've got work to do, ask God for help to abandon our excuses, to examine our hearts, and to reorder our priorities. That's going to mean something different for everybody in this room. Ask him for help to do that. Here's why. I believe that God is calling the North Canton Chapel to amazing things. And some of those things are simple. But following God always, always, always means abandoning our excuses, examining our hearts, reordering our priorities. So in this room, if you're a mom this morning, here's what you do with that. You bring your motherhood under your understanding of your calling and you be the best mom that you can be because God wants you to make much of Jesus in that space. If you're here and you're a grandparent, you figure out what grandparenting means and you bring that under your calling and you say, I'm going to make much of Jesus in that space. If you're selling insurance, right, you bring your idea of vocation under your understanding of calling and you bring Jesus into every meeting, every phone call, every interaction you have. If you're a student in here this morning, you ask God to help you bring your understanding of that under your calling and make much of Jesus in those spaces. God is inviting everybody in this room into something amazing. But to keep our priorities right, we've got to remember what really matters. So the band's going to come up in a little bit. I want to sing a song that's called Come to the Altar. Now, this is just a piece of wood at the front of the stage, but it represents an altar, a place where we go, okay, God, it's yours. And maybe you've got something that you're holding on to and you're going, I just got to, okay, you can have it. And so I want to invite you. You can do it at your seat if you want, but sometimes the physical can be a catalyst for the spiritual And so I want to invite you to come on up and take a knee and just have some time with God where you do business with him and say, God, here, I'm abandoning my excuses. I'm going to reexamine my heart. Would you help me reorder my priorities? Let's pray.